So, John chapter 1 is where we're going to start. I'm going to tell you that up front. We are going to kind of um, go other places, um, but that's where we're going to be. So let me, let, me, let me lay this out for you. So it's Christmas. Christmas is about Jesus, okay? In American culture, Christmas is about presents, and we talked about that a little bit last week, how the, the Christmas gift can come and the way that it's wrapped can or may not demonstrate the value of the gift itself. It doesn't necessarily have to be perfectly wrapped in order for it to be a, a costly gift. It can be thrown in a Walmart bag and delivered. That's okay. But the value really is found in the gift, not in the wrapping. And so as we looked at the story of Jesus and how he was born and the circumstances and the surroundings around his birth, we saw that perfectly. A precious gift with some sketchy wrapping paper. This morning, we're going to talk about the awkward family member. Do any of you have an awkward cousin or family member? Please raise your hand. Yeah, you can't point to them, though. <laughs> Don't point at them. They're right next to you. All right, so let me, okay. So, so maybe a quarter of you raised your hand when I said, do you have an awkward family member? That's not good news. Let me explain why. Every family has an awkward family member. And if you can't name which one it is in your family, it's you. So you should have probably shot that hand up a little faster. So what makes for an awkward family member? Sometimes it's the way they talk. Uh, I do think that there's times, don't mind me, I'll be right back here. I'm not going to do the whole thing this time, but you know, I figured somebody gave this to me last week. I would hate to not use it. So, so maybe it's what they wear. So it would be a little strange for, for a, a guy like me to show up at your home for a Ravens party. And why would you ever have a Ravens party? But why... Uh, if I showed up wearing this, that'd be a little strange, wouldn't it? It would be a little awkward. I, I might need to get a ride home because my tires may or may not be slashed. Um, so I'll point this out that tomorrow night, there's a football game on television. Just saying. But I'll keep it, I'll keep it, I'll keep it there because if they lose, I don't want to eat too much crow. But they're not going to lose to the Ravens, don't worry. So, so what makes awkward? I mean, there's so many different things that could make it awkward when you're around a family member. And, and I think one of the things that happens is we study the birth of Christ and, and the, 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 the surroundings when he came, that, that we can see a pretty strange and awkward family member of Jesus's. And his name is John the Baptist. Now I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 1 and just read a couple of verses, kind of ramp us up to the place where we're going to park for this morning. And, and so just follow along with me. John chapter 1 verse 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So, we're introduced to a character who's in the story of, of Jesus, in the story of Jesus' birth, and this character's name is John the Baptist. So, when you think about awkward, what I, what I think you think about with John is this. John, John put the A in the word awkward, 
I mean, everything about this dude's life really kind of points to this awkwardness in him, including the events surrounding his birth. So you think about it, you look at Luke chapter 1, and you see Zechariah is a priest, and he's bringing the offering for his people. And as he goes in to bring the offering, the people stand outside and they pray for him. They pray for him because, you know, it's a dangerous thing for, for, for a priest to walk into the presence of a holy God. What could happen? And so the people are outside praying for, John, for, for Zechariah. I did it again. I keep messing these names up. Praying for Zechariah. And, and Zechariah is in there and he's doing the offering. And suddenly an angel appears to him. And it's, it's, it's the angel Gabriel. And he says, Zechariah, I've got good news for you. You are going to have a child. And Zechariah says, oh, you don't get it, Gabriel. I'm old. My wife, she isn't young. And the angel says, no, I am Gabriel. I have been in the presence of God. I have been sent by God himself to bring this good news to you. So, you don't believe me? As a sign, you'll be unable to speak. And from that moment forward, Zechariah was unable to talk. So the people are outside, they're praying for him, and they're wondering to themselves, what is taking him so long? Zechariah finally comes out, and they're like, what took you so long? He's like, and it says, it says uh, he kept making signs at them. I mean, you, think about it. If you can't communicate with your mouth, and people continue to talk to you and want you to talk to them, you kind of get frustrated. So I, I can picture Zechariah looking at him like, and so he's getting frustrated, and then, then, then it's like, well, what's going on? Nothing. So, okay, now fast forward. Fast forward, Elizabeth is pregnant. She, she has a baby boy. Eight days after the birth is when they would circumcise the baby, and then they would name the child. And so as they all gathered around Elizabeth upon the, the birth of this beautiful little boy, and they came to her and said, okay, now, what are you going to name the baby boy? And everybody's assumption a safe assumption was that this little child, this baby boy, was going to be named after his daddy, Zechariah, because that's what you did. And she said, no, his name is not going to be Zechariah. It'll be John. Because that's what the angel had told Zechariah to name the child. John? Who names the kid John? And so they freak out. They go get dad. They brag him over. And Zechariah, they, they look at him. This is great. They look at him. Now remember, before he came out and they were like, what took so long? And he says he's making signs at them. Okay? Now they go get John and it says they're making signs at him. And he calls for a writing pad or a tablet and he writes down his name is to be John. And then he can talk. And he begins to rehearse the what had happened, and, and celebrates the faithfulness of God in his life. It's this amazing story that surrounds the birth of John the Baptist, and yet it's not a common story, is it? Somewhat awkward. Another piece of the story about who John the Baptist is that would be a little bit awkward would be his, his choice of clothing. He enjoys camel skin. My daughter was like, so what, is he, what are some of the things that stand out about John the Baptist? And the answer was, he's stinky. Okay, I could, sure, you could go with that. What does he like to eat? Locusts and honey. So, okay, now maybe that doesn't contextualize well for us into our, our current time. So maybe your crazy cousin doesn't show up to Christmas dinner wearing camel skin and eating locusts and honey. Maybe he shows up at Christmas dinner wearing skinny jeans and talking about how he's a vegan now. Okay, good, good, good. See, that was a completely different response here than I got first service. 
First service, I made the vegan joke, and it was like, ah! So, good to know I'm among friends here in the second service. Praise God. <laughs> no, it's just a joke. We're okay. Um, what, were, <laughs> what, what, else, what else stood out about John? What else, what else jumped about John? And it really is this. His ministry, his message was very laser-like. There was nothing else that he was about other than Jesus Christ. It says that in the text that we read, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That was what he was about. He wanted to talk about the light and point to the light that all may believe through him. That was his goal. His objective was not to gain any glory himself, any majesty himself, but his goal was to preach and teach and point to the light so that others may receive the light. He wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. I mean, it's just, that is what he's all about. So what was he saying about the light? What was he saying about Jesus? He was not saying, that's Jesus. He's my cousin. It was way more intense than that. It was, well, let me read this to you out of Matthew chapter 3. You ready? John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, and so he said this. You brood of vipers. You know, nice introduction. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Now prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and you've turned to God. Don't don't just say to each other, hey, we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. See, I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from the very stones here before you. Even now, the acts of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he'll clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. See, the message that John the Baptist preached was not a a, a nice, touchy-feely message. It was, you, what are you doing here, you brood of vipers? Who told you you could escape? Because if I know you, there's no escape for you. See, stop clinging to the fact that you're in the the lineage of Abraham. Stop clinging to the fact that you have a family heritage because your family heritage cannot protect you. Stop clinging to the fact that you're religious and that you're spiritual and that you tithe so very uh, uh, precisely even to the mint that is on your shelf in your home. Because that's not going to save you. Stop clinging to the fact that you live a life and then you you repent every once in a while. You may say sorry. No, instead, live a life that bears the marks of repeated repentance. See, John the Baptist does not pull any punches in his preaching. He's, He's very clear. All of those things, stop clinging to your family heritage. Stop clinging to your spirituality and your religiosity. All of those things are important because there is an enormous event that's about to happen. There is one who is coming, and when he, the Messiah, comes, he's going to set things right in Israel. He's going to purify 
all of Israel. He's going to bring judgment on the wicked while he releases those who are oppressed. He's going to restore order to the land. He's going to draw all people back to God. And John says, that's the light. He is the one I'm pointing to. He is the one who I'm not even worthy to to carry his sandals, to, to, to be a slave in his house. He is so much more than I am. That's, that's quite the message, isn't it? I mean, that's pulling no punches. So when you think about John the Baptist and the story of Christmas, what you think about is, okay, unique birth, awkward birth. I can go with that one. It's definitely awkward uh, uh, habits when it came to his clothing and his food. And now this, this awkward and uncomfortable approach to his ministry as he preached. So, so that's, that's fine and good, but, but, but that ain't the big one. When you consider the life and ministry of John the Baptist, you consider the important role that he played in preparing the way for the Messiah. There's one event that comes in his life that actually can make us very uncomfortable. So I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles now and flip over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to spend pretty much the rest of our time together, and it it further describes perhaps one of the most awkward moments in the life of one of God's servants. So if, if John the Baptist put the A in awkward, it's in this event that he capitalized the A in awkward. I'll give you a little background. Um, John was about his way, doing his thing, as he preached very directly and specifically about certain things, holding back none, pulling no punches, being really assertive, and, 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 and okay, so if we heard him, we'd probably think he was a little obnoxious, but he was not about to let anything go that he shouldn't let go. So he began to try to hold accountable Herod, of all people, Herod. He begins talking about how Herod, Herod should not be engaged in the relationship with that woman because that's his sister-in-law. And so what ends up happening is Herod finds out, or better, Herod's sister-in-law finds out that John the Baptist is publicly decrying their relationship. Herod has John the Baptist arrested, and eventually, if you continue reading in Matthew chapter 11, you get to, or sorry, to to Matthew chapter 14, you find that that John the Baptist is put to death because of Herod's sister-in-law, who he's having an illicit affair with. So right now in Matthew 11, what has happened is John the Baptist has been arrested, and he is sitting in prison awaiting his fate. Look at verse 2 of Matthew chapter 11. Now when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who's come? Or shall we look for another? You, you, you the one to come? Or, or, or are we looking for somebody else? That from the mouth of a man who stood before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, calling them a brood of vipers, 
telling them that this one who's about to walk into the water to have John the Baptist actually baptize Jesus, the one who's about to walk, he is so majestic and mighty, so powerful, so awesome, so wonderful. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one we've been waiting for. I am not even worthy of being his slave. And then fast forward a few years and you have him sitting in, prayer, in jail saying, I think I've made a horrible mistake. The one who is preparing the way for the anointed one. The one who is declaring, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now fast forward and he's saying, are you really the Lamb of God that takes away sin of the world? I mean, John has been preaching that God will set all things right in Israel. This one's going to come. He's going to purify Israel. He's going to bring judgment on the wicked while he releases the oppressed. He's going to restore order to the land. He's going to draw all people back to God. And John sits in prison. What you see happening in the John the Baptist's life is something that's not that uncommon for us. It's a season of doubt and a season of frustration and a season of questioning. So what I want to look at in our remaining time this morning is this, is answering this question, what causes doubts in us? And I think the the big umbrella answer to that, what causes doubts in us is when our understanding and God's reality don't line up. When, when our understanding and God's reality don't line up, it creates this doubt deep in our soul. So what can happen is you look at your surroundings, you look at your circumstances, and they don't make any sense to you that can create doubt. I mean, look at John the Baptist. He had this definite picture in his mind about what the Messiah would be like, what the Messiah would do, but now suddenly he's, he's disappointed. He'd, he'd been waiting for the Messiah to come in and just clean house. He was tired of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been doing to his people, and he, he wanted to see the Messiah set them straight. He wanted to see the Messiah come in and just with a, an iron fist deal with them, wipe them out, and then bring back those who've been oppressed and elevate them, and instead what Jesus is doing is he's preaching. And he's doing some incredible things. But Jesus doesn't see the Pharisees and Sadducees being kicked out. He doesn't see the, those being oppressed being released. He doesn't see the Romans being kicked out of Judea. It's, it's just not like he had imagined. And so John the Baptist is disappointed. His hopes are crushed. And he still sits in jail. And if you're in a place like that, where you're your circumstances are dark and your hopes have been crushed, it's not a surprising thing that you would struggle with doubt. Uh, Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that your faith is based on your circumstances, but it's ridiculous to say that our circumstances have no effect whatsoever on our faith. I, I think... One of the things we need to wrestle with is that false gospel that's out there that says, come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. 
Come to Jesus. All your problems will be solved. That's a lie. Now, understand how I say that. (laughs) There's still prison for those who've come to Jesus. There's still untimely death for those who've come to Jesus. There's still cancer for those who've come to Jesus. There's still layoffs for those who come to Jesus. There's still heartache for those that come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus doesn't make things perfect. What coming to Jesus does is it gives us a reality. See, the problem is that in our doubts, our our immediate circumstances and God's immediate reality aren't lined up. And so we need to be careful that our circumstantial expectations are, are actually guided by the reality of God's word. Not by our hopes and our dreams, our, our, our puny little hopes and dreams. You realize that, right? Many times what we dream for and long for is so microscopic compared to what God has in store for us. We would cheat ourselves if we would get everything we had hoped for and dreamed for. So our circumstances and our expectations must be aligned with the reality of God and his word. And, and the way Jesus responds is beautiful here. So his, John's disciples had come and said, are you the one or should we be looking for another? And Jesus' answer in verse four is beautiful. He says this, go. Tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus says, go, go back, talk to John, and tell him what it is that I'm doing. For many of us, when our expectations and God's reality don't align, we need to stop and look to see what it is that Jesus is in fact doing around us and in us and through us and for us and in spite of us. And so Jesus lays it out so John can't ask any more questions. He says, listen, I want to explain it to you. This is what's happening. The lame are leaping, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the mute are speaking. There's great things happening. And then delicately, gently, and lovingly, Jesus offers a soft rebuke to John the Baptist in verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, very softly, Jesus reminds John who's God and who's not. Blessed is the one who, though your circumstances aren't what you want them to be, take rest in the fact that I am God and I'm in control. So when circumstances don't make any sense to us, when the circumstances are here, God's reality is here, and it causes us to doubt, God, what are you doing? Do you, have, you, have you lost your mind? Have you fallen asleep at the wheel? Did your alarm not go off? What, what is happening? When, when you run back to the word of God, you find out what it is that he's promised, and you find that God never promised easy, but he promised his presence. See, if I was to, to finish this passage and continue to read at the end of chapter 11, that's the beautiful passage that talks about coming to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, Jesus never promised easy, but he promised his presence. Just to point this out in, in passing, 
Um, when the, the, the disciples went their way, verse 7, John's disciples went their way and headed back to John the Baptist, Jesus began speaking to the crowds out of earshot of John the Baptist and his disciples. He says, man, let me tell you about John the Baptist. When you went to the wilderness, did you go see this, this reed shaken by the wind, this wishy-washy guy? Nope, that is not the guy you went to see. When you went out, did you go see the guy who is in soft clothing? No, because soft clothing belongs to those who are in king's houses. So when you went out to see John the Baptist, what is it that you went to see? A prophet? <laughs> yeah, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way for you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. See, Jesus is giving this glowing report about who John the Baptist is, but he does it when John the Baptist can't hear. Why would he do that? Don't you think those are words John needs to hear right now? No. The last thing you need to hear in your season of doubt is how awesome you are. What you need to hear is how awesome Jesus is. Now Jesus, here's an amazing thing. John doubted. How did Jesus feel about him? Was he angry? Was he upset? Did he write about him on the blogs? There is none born of a woman who is greater than that guy. Can you imagine Jesus saying that about you? Interesting you would imagine that because look at how that verse ends. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When our circumstances and God's reality don't align, a season of doubt comes, and what we need to do is continue to run back and focus on the truth. What else can cause doubts among us? Well, here's another one. You, you struggle with sin. And you thought that when you accepted Christ, that struggle with sin would go away. You would never struggle with sin anymore. Um, my... <laughs> I thought, this is stupid, I, I went to Bible college, and I thought that going to Bible college, psh, I would be the holiest guy that ever existed. Surprise, there's sinners at Bible college too. I was a good one. <laughs> good sinner, not a good guy. Um, <laughs> when you struggle with sin, maybe, maybe I'll say it this way, that's a gift of the gospel. Huh? So you're saying it's good to sin? No. It's good to struggle. Because when you wrestle, that means there's air in your lungs and you're still alive in the match and you still have a chance to win. So when you struggle, that means there's life inside of you and you're not dead yet. And so struggling with sin is an evidence that there's actually something there. It's a gift of the gospel to struggle because what the gospel does, it gives you the freedom to struggle. Gives you the opportunity to struggle because it's, the, the, the gospel doesn't bring us to the place where there's an absence of struggle. The gospel, when accepted by us, when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he died for our sins, what that does is it brings us to a place where we're no longer settled in our defiance against God. Now it's a daily battle. Now it's a struggle. Now it's a fight. So, so I was sharing this earlier. This is absolutely true. So I was a college pastor, a uh, pastor of single adult ministry, so I was over the college ministry for the first 10 years of ministry. And, and without exaggeration, Christmas and summer, I would have to make sure that I had plenty of available time in my calendar for the college kids who came home from college. Because this is not an exaggeration. This was, we documented this after the first two years. I started noticing a trend. A third of the college students who went away to college would show up in my office or in a conversation with me at some point, either over Christmas or summer, and said, I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I'm really wrestling with 
with where I stand with God. And my response to them was, every time, good, I'm glad you just said you're wrestling. Because if you were okay with it, that would be an evidence of a lack of faith in you. If you were okay with this, this uneasiness in your heart, that would mean there's no love for Jesus. Instead, you are so wrecked by this that you're going to continue to wrestle with it until you land on your two feet with your own faith and your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And so to wrestle is a good thing. The, the gospel is you can wrestle with your sin. See, understand it this way. In, in, in your weakness... Because that's what wrestling with sin is. It's just another demonstration of your weakness. In your weakness, you have a refuge, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. I mean, in your weakness, what should happen is you should be reminded time and time again of how much you need Jesus Christ and how unable you are to please God without him. That's this beautiful gift that we have. See, uh, uh, running out of time, i got a lot of rabbit trails I can still do, but I won't. Let's, let, me, let, me, let me end this point with this. Our standing before God isn't wrapped up in us being perfect. It's a good thing because every single one of us would fail with bright flames and loud explosions. Our standing before God has nothing to do with our perfection. Our standing before God has everything to do with the perfection of Jesus Christ. And because he is perfect... I can stand knowing that there is no condemnation. And I can go boldly into his presence because I'm accepted in the Father's eyes because I've been redeemed by the Savior's blood. And so we can go boldly into his presence. So, so maybe, maybe this, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We'll throw the first half up there for you. This would be the most discouraging verse in all of Scripture if it ended here. 1 John 2, verse 1 says this. My dear children... I write this to you so you will not sin. Man, how many, <laughs> how many of you want to put that on a coffee cup? Hey, don't sin. Oh. That's just pure misery if it ends right there, isn't it? Oh. So he wrote 1 John, so I would read it and be like, never sin again. Oh. Oh. Guess what? It's not even like wait till next week when I sin and, and, and do wrong. It's wait till half an hour from now and sin again. And 20 minutes from now and sin again, man. So he says, I'm writing this so that you will not sin. That could be very discouraging, except the verse continues. <laughs> John says this, my dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So by all means, we're not saying run out and sin as much as you can so you can take advantage of your advocate. But know this, you will sin. And the beautiful message of the gospel is that you have a refuge and his name is Jesus. So maybe the doubts have been coming to you because of your struggle with sin. And, and honestly, I want to be very careful and walk carefully because th this one's dangerous if I don't do this carefully. Some people um, wrestle with a season of doubt because you struggle with your own salvation. You wonder if you've ever really been saved. Um, maybe this word of encouragement will help. If you're not currently struggling with your salvation, there's no doubt you have at one point or another. That's just reality. Maybe this will help. Your salvation uh, isn't or wasn't brought about by you saying a prayer 
by you checking a box on a card, by going forward in a service. Because salvation isn't this, this mantra, this magical incantation. It's not a formula that if I say the right things in just the right ways, then poof, I'm saved. That's not salvation. Salvation isn't a result of you praying the right prayer at just the right time with just the right feelings of remorse. That's not salvation. Salvation isn't a, a shallow commitment to Jesus that's wrapped up in attendance or membership to a church. Salvation isn't being a good person because good people, when they stand before God, trusting their own goodness, are in effect looking at God himself and saying, thanks for your son Jesus, but I didn't need him because I'm good enough. Salvation isn't being a good person. Salvation is the belief that you are who God said you were, a sinner. Salvation is belief that Jesus is who he said he was, the lamb who was sacrificed for us on the cross and risen for us on the third day to bring us peace. Salvation is is leaning all the hopes of your soul on that finished work of Jesus Christ. It's knowing that apart from Jesus Christ, you're condemned. It's knowing that, that Jesus is your only hope and so you, you cling to him with everything that you have. Not because you're afraid you're going to lose him, but because you realize how desperately you need him. Stop. Understand how I say this. Stop trying to identify the moment, the hour, the place, the words, the surroundings of when you came to know Jesus Christ. It's great if you remember that. But the problem is much harm has been done when mom and dad, and, and guilty, just going to be honest, say, oh, but I was there when you prayed the prayer. Stop, stop. Maybe this will help. Um, I told first hour, I'm a little worried. I've been reading Leviticus and loving it. That usually means there's a preaching series coming up, so you can pray for us. All of us, trust me. He thought the Patriots jersey was a bad visual. Wait till I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, sorry. Leviticus chapter 1 and Leviticus chapter 4. It's talking about the burnt offering and the sin offering. And now the head of the household is supposed to bring his lamb and, and stand before the priest and place his hand on the head of the lamb. And then the lamb would be taken in and sacrificed. And that would be the payment for his and his family's sin when he had placed his head on the ha- hand on the head of the lamb, and then the lamb was sacrificed. I think sometimes we get so focused on, so when did it, how did it, who did it, where was I, did I write down the time right, did I get it right, that we forget that salvation isn't that. What salvation is leaning all your hopes, all, that your entire soul on Jesus Christ, knowing that without Jesus you're condemned. But I don't remember when. I know. I wrestle with that. I know I accepted Christ, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I narrowed it down to this time, but there was a second moment, an event in my life that I'm like, maybe that was it. I'm, so does that mean I'm going to get docked points when I go to heaven, and I'm not sure exactly when? No. Well, how do you rectify that? How do you, how do you, how do you balance that in your head, Frank? How do you live confidently if you can't remember exactly when? This is how. Where's your hand right now? Right this moment, where's that hand? 
Do you have it on your own head going, man, I think I'm good enough. I think I've read my Bible enough. I think God's happy with me. I think we'll be okay. I've carried a Bible. I brought a Bible. Shoot, I missed service last week. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Or is your head on the lamb, your hand on the lamb? If your hand is there on Jesus Christ, you have nothing to worry about. It doesn't matter when it happened. I don't remember when. Right now. Is your soul's hope leaning on the Son of God? Because that's what salvation is. So, so how do we overcome doubts? We stop focusing on our circumstances. We stop focusing on our difficulties. We stop focusing on our inability to remember exactly when, where, how, and why. And instead, we focus on the truth. We spend our time focusing and trusting on the truth. And the truth is this, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, that's backwards. God sent his son so that the world, through him, would be saved. When we wrestle with doubts, we need to focus and trust the truth. Here's another one. Because what comes with doubt is guilt. Why do I doubt? I'm sorry, I'm doubting again. And there's that, that overwhelming feeling of guilt. So let me, let me remind you two things. First of all, this. Um, God's big enough to handle your doubts. And Jesus responding to John the Baptist demonstrates the fact that, that Jesus still loves John just as much as he did before he found out John was questioning things. There is no greater man born from a woman than John the Baptist. He's, he's something. The other thing I'd remind you of is this. As Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 15, he says this to them. Just as the Father has loved me, Stop right there. Jesus is talking about the Father's love for him. Has the Father ever stopped loving Jesus? No. So just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. There is a love that is never-ending. There is a love that's big enough for all of your questions and your doubts. And there is a love that is worth leaning all of your soul's hope upon. And it comes from Jesus Christ himself. And so as we consider Christmas, may we remember that, as Terry said, and as that song was sung, that Emmanuel is true. Emmanuel, it's not just a name. It's a reality. It means God with us. God showed up. And that's what we celebrate and look forward to this Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your great patience with us. God, there's no question that we, we try that patience over and over again. And yet you love us. You en- you've endured the shame that we've brought to you in your name. And Father, yet you're still there, faithful, willing to forgive us and consistently doing so. Lord, I pray that we would find our hope in you.
Lord, I pray for the ones who may be struggling this morning with doubts. Lord, would you encourage their hearts? May they look to the truth, not the circumstances. May they continue to look to where their hand is being placed at this moment. God, I ask that even in their moments of doubt, that they would place the full weight of their soul on Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us. May we never forget it and never stop celebrating it. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.